Katie Jones, and uh, my family and I normally worship at Rock Creek Fellowship uh, on the mountain, so it's a joy to be with you all this morning and see some of you again. Um, if you want to take a Bible and turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 73, you know, every time uh, Hutch calls me to uh, fill in for him, I always assume hunting season has started or, or something of that nature, uh, but it's my understanding uh, that he took some of his family on a spiritual pilgrimage to Athens, Georgia this weekend uh, to uh, nurture his children as he sees it in the admonition of the Lord with some Georgia football. So we won't hold that against him. We'll pray for those children. Uh, but like him, I, I love live events. I love sporting events. I love uh, live music especially. And I have uh, one band in particular I've grown fond of seeing in concert, and that's the Avet Brothers. Some of you may be familiar with their music. Seen them now 12 times in concert. Love their live show experiences. Uh, and one of the reasons I like them is because of their portfolio of songs just covers all the spectrum of like human emotion, uh, from joy to sorrow, from, uh, from starting a marriage to ending a marriage, all, everything in between. Uh, they, they really tap into all the, the spectrum of emotions and moments that uh, many people encounter through life. And a similar thing could be said about the book of Psalms. You know, one of the attractions of reading the Psalter, besides it being God's Word, uh, is that it covers a spectrum of human emotion. It touches upon the different aspects and experiences of life, from waking up in the morning to going to bed at night, from being sad about something to being mad about something. There's all kinds of, of psalms. There's a psalm for every occasion, a psalm for every season. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 73, and if it speaks to any aspect of the human experience or even the Christian experience, it is speaking uh, to us about doubt. What it's like in those moments where we doubt God, we doubt His goodness, we doubt our experience in this world, we maybe even doubt, we feel like we have hope uh, or are hopeless when it comes to the future. And so let's give our attention to Psalm 73, and I'll invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. 
Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Please be seated. Let me uh, pray for us once again as we consider God's word. Father in heaven, we ask of you this morning that just as real as we are here in this place situated next to each other, as real as it is that we are in each other's presence, would it be as real to us this morning that you are in our midst? We pray for your Holy Spirit that you would be pleased to share him with us in his full measure, to remove obstacles that would keep us from you, and to light the pathway to you, and Father, to lead us into your presence. And so we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, my family went on vacation to California, to Los Angeles. It was the first time I flew on an airplane. Uh, I, we lived in Birmingham, so this was a big deal to grow cross-country. Uh, only things I knew about California at that time were things I had seen in movies and on television shows and things of that sort. But I had an absolutely enchanting experience as an eighth grader. Uh, thought, you know, the, this place with the scenery and the celebrities and all of this that, you know, who wouldn't want to live here? And, and so much so that I decided when it came to my later time in my high school years that I wanted to go to college in California. And I did. I went to college in California. I went to college in Los Angeles. And it was a great experience. I met a lovely young lady from Mississippi whom I married there. I uh, got married there, got a job in Hollywood. Uh, I had a job that let me rub shoulders with celebrities. I was going backstage at concerts and on television shows. I, by every measure that people tend to think about it, you could say I was living the good life. That, that this was a great life. Who wouldn't want what I was doing? And, and all of that changed almost in a moment. It changed when my wife and I discovered that we were expecting the birth of our first child. You see, up to that point, I had thought of the good life as living in California. This place with, it's probably 74 degrees and blue skies there today. Just hate them people because they don't deserve that. We deserve that. But, but you can golf year-round, you can do anything outdoors year-round. It's just a great place to live. Who wouldn't want this? But then all of a sudden, with 
with one piece of information, with one data point in front of me, uh, everything took on different levels of importance than it had before. I was now going to reorient my whole life because I was going to become a father. So much so that I left my job, relocated our family to Atlanta because the nearest family we had was 2,500 miles away, uh, and we wanted them to be closer to extended family. But just to think about, as I look back now, all the radical decisions I made in that moment simply because I found out I was going to be a father. But you've had this experience before probably, right, where some significant event has taken place in your life that forces you to reorder your priorities, forces you to rethink the decisions you're making, where you're living, how you're spending your time, how you're taking care of yourself, right? It could be a, uh, you meet someone, if you get married perhaps, that will often force you to reorder your priorities. Uh, it could be a health crisis, right? It could be all sorts of things. And that's the sort of moment, the experience that we are able to peek into in the life of Asaph this morning. That he, he is rethinking life's priorities. And he is trying to decide what his vision of the good life is going to look like. And he has a moment a significant event takes place that reorders everything, gives him a new north star. And that, that significant event for Asaph is told to us in verse 17. He says, I entered the sanctuary. That He says, once I was in the presence of God, once I was reminded about realities that are eternal, I reordered and rethought everything. And so it is for us in life, but so it is for us when it comes to the good life. That we all have a vision, whether or not we know it or intentional about processing it, we all have a vision of what the good life is. We all have things we daydream about, things that we think will bring us more joy and more hope in life if, if they occur. And Asaph is just like us in that sense. But he says that after he goes into the sanctuary and has this encounter with God, that he rethinks his vision of the good life. And you know, Asaph is very honest in this psalm. And he pretty much is trying to decide whether or not God is the path to the good life or whether God is the obstacle to the good life. And if you haven't had that experience yet or those same thoughts, you will. There will be moments in your life where you will be left to wonder whether God is truly the path to the good life or is He actually the obstacle, the thing that is getting in the way of it. But this morning, God wants to challenge and change our vision of the good life. And like Asaph, Asaph was spending all of his time on Instagram looking at other people's life. <laughs> but then he goes into the sanctuary and he's reminded of things that are true and eternal and life-changing uh, and lasting. And so this morning, what we're going to do is to look at Psalm 73 as we think about the good life for us and the things that we may struggle with like Asaph did. And what I want to do is to look at this psalm and just really bring your attention to three things that this psalm talks about that help us as we try to think about the good life. The first thing we want to uh, that I want to point out to you from this psalm about the good life is that it starts with this. That to, to experience the good life, you have to, first of all, believe God is good. <laughs> that in order to know the good life as God describes it, you have to have this fundamental belief. Number one, you have to believe God is good. That sounds very basic, 
but it's functionally very difficult. <laughs> that we have to believe God is good. In fact, that's how the psalm starts out. Verse 1, surely God is good to Israel. And then later on, it kind of bookends the psalm. Verse 23 and 24, you hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever, it goes on to say. God is good. And if you believe that, if we believe that, then we can't help but conclude that to be in right fellowship with Him is the pathway to the good life. That if God is good, then for us to experience goodness is to know Him and to be near Him. So what does it mean when we say God is good? Well, it means this. God is in His very nature good. He's good. That in other words, God does not have to work Himself up into a mood to be good. God doesn't have to be cajoled to be good. He does not have to do anything against His nature to be good. It is natural for Him to desire good things, to do good things, to give good things. It's natural for Him because God is good. You know, there was a flip of the switch in my own life, my own Christian experience a number of years ago, where I, I, if I was honest with you, what I believed was that God is good to me because Jesus died for me, and that in the sense that God, Jesus is now forcing God's hand to be good to me. <laughs> that, that because Jesus went and died, I, I, I had this trump card I had to play around, you know, you have to be good to me because he did that for me. When in reality, really, if I understood the cross, that this, the cross doesn't force God's hand, right? The cross is the expression of God's hand toward me. God is good to me, therefore He sends His Son to die for me. Not His Son comes and dies for me and now forces the Father to be good to me. And so the Father is good. It's in His very nature. It's what He enjoys doing. It's what He daydreams about is being good. Surely, like Asaph says, God is good to Israel. Now, like I said before, that's fundamental, fundamentally important to our vision of the good life, but it's functionally very difficult to believe on a day-to-day -day basis. And here's why. Because we tend to elevate good things God gives us into the place of God Himself. And we look to those things to be the source of goodness to us, rather than God Himself. So we do this. So God gives us good things. Good things like money. Good things like pleasure. Good things like work. And our tendency is to take those good things and elevate them into the place of God Himself, where we believe now these things are the source of goodness in our lives. So to have more goodness is to have more of it. And so we take good things that God gives and we make them ultimate things, or to put it another way, we take the gifts God gives and put them in the position of God Himself. Uh, when Martin Luther wrote his catechism 
uh, about the first commandment. He's trying to explain the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. He tried to define what is meant by other gods. And he described a God as that from which you expect to get good things. That's your God. What do you expect to get good things from? And by the way, you can put a whole lot of things in that position. You can put even your children in that position. We, we can look to all sorts of wonderful things that God gives us to be the source of goodness and hope in our lives, as Luther described it. And that's, that's what was going on here. Asaph was wondering whether maybe he was looking to the wrong things for goodness. <laughs> because he, as he was just looking around, it, it perceived that other people were experiencing a lot of goodness through, through pleasure, through money, through power, through all these things. And he was wondering, is God the pathway to goodness or is he the obstacle to goodness? And of course, that's the temptation, by the way, that's always been there for humankind. Think back to the Garden of Eden, Eve, when she was tempted. What was the technique that Satan used? Eve, Satan says, God does not want you to eat this fruit because he knows when you do, good things will happen to you. You will now know good and evil. You'll have full knowledge. God is keeping good things from you. How did Satan tempt Jesus in Matthew 4? Uh, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You can have everything now. You don't have to go the way God appointed. You can have it all now. Just bow to me and it's all yours. And so the temptation that Satan continually puts before us even today is to believe that God withholds good things, right? It's keeping us from the good life, that he's the obstacle to it and that there's easier ways to it than through him. And it is a real temptation, if we're honest with ourselves, that we, we look at our lives and, and maybe like uh, Asaph here, uh, verse 14, our, our lives have suffering. Uh, I, all day long I've been plagued, I've been punished every morning, where other people's lives look glorious who are not walking with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we wonder whether or not God is the pathway or the obstacle. Well, if anyone can sympathize with, perhaps if anyone you could say, carefully, could be justified in questioning the goodness of God, it would be Jesus, right? It would, it would be Jesus. But Jesus believed God is good. Jesus believed it so, so uh, steadfastly that he was willing to go to the cross with that belief. And of course, if we need any evidence that this is actually true, that God is good, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that God declares to the world that that Jesus' obedience was rewarded for having held steadfastly to believing the Father would raise him from the dead. But it does bring up a question for us this morning in Psalm 73 that we'd like to ask in our more uh, moments of clarity, which is, why aren't the wicked more miserable? <laughs> That's Asaph's question. Why aren't the wicked more miserable, God? You know, they... Life seems to be going pretty well by all kind of visible evidences that he can see. So why aren't the wicked more miserable? And here's the simple answer. The wicked aren't more miserable because God is good. That's why the wicked aren't more miserable, because God is good. That comes out multiple times in the Bible. Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, 
who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The, the Bible reminds us the reason the, that, that the wicked aren't miserable is because God's kind. God is good. It's in his very nature to be good. And in fact, later, it says in Romans, Paul says that the reason that God hasn't visited the wicked with justice right now is because his kindness is meant to lead them, give them opportunity for repentance. God is good even to the wicked. God is good, and that's why the wicked aren't more miserable. And by the way, you could see God's goodness even in this psalm in a wonderful way. Because notice in verse 3, Asaph confesses. He says, I envied the arrogant. He's he's talking to God, not us. He's not writing a memoir here for our (laughs) purposes. He's, he's, He's writing a prayer and he says, I envied the arrogant. He's telling God what was going on in his heart. I envied the arrogant. But notice that in the same psalm, he can say that. And yet with the same confidence, say uh, later on in verse 24, and afterward you will take me into glory. That this is, this is what we mean by God is good to Israel. That, that we can confess uh, that we are not good, <laughs> and that yet He will be good to us. That God is good to people who even come and confess their sins and seek His mercy. And so if we're going to experience the good life, Uh, then it means living in fellowship with Him who is good. And so we need to believe God is good. But the second thing that we need to to do is not just believe God is good, but there's a second thing that comes out in this psalm that we would do well to take note of, which is to stop comparing ourselves to others. Notice all the consternation in this psalm is brought up by the fact that Asaph is trying to compare his experience with the experience of others, right? He says, I look around as I, uh, I saw, verse 3, the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. They're free. Uh, he goes on to even go as far to say, uh, verse 12, they're always carefree. They increase in wealth. And so he's looking at their lives, and that's what makes him question the decisions he's made about his own life, right? And so he's comparing himself with others. But you'll never be satisfied with what you have or with what you're experiencing if the standard is what others have and what others are experiencing. That's a testimony not just in this psalm, but throughout the Scripture. Uh, As my wife is fond of saying, comparison is the thief of joy. Uh, And it's true, spiritually speaking. Because it says here that, we learn from here, that comparing ourselves to others is dangerous. Because as Asaph is struggling with, we expect that the wicked will experience bad things and the righteous will only experience good things, and that's not what's happening. Rather, the righteous are experiencing bad things while the wicked are experiencing good things, and it leads to this confusion as he compares his life to the life of the wicked. But just uh, as a reminder that uh, this has been an issue from the beginning of the Bible once again. Uh, the, the first sin outside the garden that we're talk, told about is Cain and Abel, as Cain, what? Envies Abel. And that envy uh, drives him to kill his own brother. But there's a dangerous thing when you try to compare yourselves to others and interpret God's uh, will or God's providence based on their experience. 
So I, I say that uh, to say this. We don't believe that material prosperity is a sign of God's blessings in somebody's life. In and of itself. It can be, but it doesn't have to be, right? So the most materially prosperous people, we don't read into that, that that's the hand of God's blessing on their life, that they are the righteous in that sense. Likewise, I hope, we also don't read into material poverty, right? That that's a sign of God's curse, that these people have done something wrong, and that's why they are in that condition. We don't try to read blessing and curse into people's experiences, especially materially and financially. But this is always, we're always, we tend to do this. We just tend to. We try to, to say, well, that's God's curse, that's God's blessings as we look at people's lives. So much so, remember it twice in Jesus' own ministry this happens. So in Luke 13, Jesus uh, is visited by some people and he said, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? So Jesus just takes a, a local disaster. A, a tower fell, it killed people. He's like, do you think the people that died in there were somehow more wicked because of this experience? And then again in John 9, as he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And what did his own disciples ask him? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So our tendency is not just to compare ourselves to others, but to actually assign blessing and curse to the experience that we're having and they're having. This is blessing and this is curse. And the Bible says that's just not the way the world currently works. That, that we're not meant to do that. Because if you start comparing yourself to others, and you look around like Asaph, and you see the wicked prospering, you're going to have to draw a few conclusions. You're going to have to conclude, well, either God does keep good things from, from good people, from His own children, or that the nature of the world is such that those who do bad things go unpunished. So that's another conclusion you could draw. Or you could draw the conclusion that God is presently not dispensing full justice to people. And that's the conclusion the Bible would remind us of. That what we're watching play out in this present moment is not full justice. That that's being reserved as we'll see a little bit from now. But not only stop comparing yourselves to others, but let me just make one more point about when you do compare yourselves to others. Is just going back to verse 3. Uh, start being honest with yourself before being honest about yourself before God. It still is a very uh, startling thing that Asaph says in verse 3, and it'd be easy just to read over. I envied the arrogant. That this is Asaph talking before God about himself. And if we're going to experience the good life, it's not just stop comparing ourselves to others and try to figure out God's blessing and curse as it is in this world, but to ask God's help to see ourselves, to see things about ourselves that aren't good. But even more, just for your own Christian life, notice that it is good and right and proper to pray your sin and pray your doubt. That even when you look at other people's lives and you, you can't make, you're confused, you're not clear about what God is doing, pray it. Pray your doubt. Say, God, I'm looking around and I cannot make sense of what you're doing in my life and in this world at the moment. And in fact, at times, I'm not sure which side of this equation I want to be on. <laughs> and, and that's okay to pray that. It's in 
It's in the Bible. Because, but of course, we want to end up in verse 17 with Asaph as well. We don't want to stop in verse 3, but we want to take that into God's presence and allow him to help us rethink our vision of the good life. And so this psalm reminds us to believe God is good, to stop comparing ourselves to others. And the third thing uh, it points out to us is what I'll call uh, play the long game. <laughs> play the long game. That might not be a phrase that's familiar to all of you. That's a fancy way of saying take the long perspective on things. Uh, or another way to say it might be focus on the war and not so much on individual battles here. But play the long game. And by that I mean simply this. Keep eternity in view. Keep eternity in view. Because that's what Asaph does here, right? He goes from just looking at momentary prosperity to thinking about eternal realities. It, there's a, that after verse 17, after he goes into the sanctuary... He says, now, verse 18, they are on slippery ground. They will be cast down to ruin. They will be destroyed. They will be swept away. Their lives, verse 20, will be shown to have been like a fantasy. That Asaph says here what the Bible tells us elsewhere, which is what? Life is like a mist. Life is like a vapor. That everything that seems so real now will seem very unreal in light of eternity. That everything that people build their lives on is sinking sand, or like verse 18 says, is slippery ground. You know, I started a, a business uh, five years ago, and like anybody who starts a business, you want it to take off overnight. You've got plans written down. This is how things are going to happen. You know, charge ahead. And of course, nothing happens like that. But uh, I came across a quote uh, that Bill Gates is known for that I found to be very true from my experience, which is when it, he was talking about business, but it's true for almost all parts of life which is most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10. That's true. We all tend to be short-term thinkers. We all tend to think about the immediate and the instant rather than the lasting and eternal. That's just the way part of our fallen nature uh, trends towards. We live in the age of the immediate, but we're pilgrims of the eternal, the Bible reminds us. And what Asaph wanted, what Asaph was tempted to want, was to want glory now. These people seem to be getting glory now. They're, they're happy, they're wealthy, they're powerful. And Asaph is wondering to himself, well, that would be nice to have that kind of glory now. But of course, he's reminded that that glory, as the world calls it, is a fading glory. It, it, is, it is things that end at the grave. But instead, he's reminded as he goes into the sanctuary of God that there are things that are more lasting and more important. You know, some of you might be fans of the uh, series Stranger Things. If you're not, just ignore me here. Uh, but uh, you could say that part of this psalm is that Asaph is coming to the recognition that we currently live in the world of the upside down. Okay, we're, we're, Things aren't right side up. We're living in the upside down. And one day, things are going to be set right side up. And these things, well, these things that are real will be made permanent and, and visible in a very uh, stark way. But right now, we're not living with things right side up. The order is presently confused. But God's going to set everything right. And that's why Asaph can have confidence that one day, this will all the, the prosperity of the wicked will be shown to have been vanity and worthlessness. But as he says, he will be able to say that 
Even though his own flesh and his heart will fail, God will prove to be the strength of his heart and his portion forever. And so we presently are looking at things upside down, but one day, the day of Christ's coming, things will be set right side up. You know, once again, there is good news when it comes to this about the long game, about eternity, and even about God's justice. That one day God is going to give full justice. That day is just not today. The, the good news is this. God is not presently giving any of us what we deserve. That's the good news. The good news is that God is not presently giving the wicked what they deserve. The good news is that God is not giving us what we deserve. But the good news is that He is going to bring justice And in that day of reckoning, those who are in Christ will experience, as Asaph says here, glory. And those who have refused Christ will be swept away from their slippery ground. And so there is a day when God's righteous justice will be revealed. And this is what I mean by play the long game. Keep eternity in view. That we have to remember that if God gave fully and immediately to people what they deserve, that none of us would be here today. But God will set all wrong right. And we can even suffer for His name, like Asaph, because we know He will set that wrong right with the coming of His Son. Of course, that, the, that phrase in verse 25 and 26, if you are familiar with the Bible, is one of the more memorable phrases from all the psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing I desire besides you. You know, just to once again think about the long, the long game here. You know, our hope of heaven is not really because of the streets of gold, right? Our, our hope in heaven is not because finally the healthcare plan is perfect and we're free from all ills. Uh, our, our hope in heaven is, is not even being reunited with family and friends. Uh, what makes heaven heavenly is God. That God is what makes heaven heavenly. It's that we get to be for eternity in the presence without any disruption of our own or others, enjoying the presence of God who is good. And so we, this morning, need God to challenge and change our vision of the good life. Because if you're like me, or if you're like Asaph, there are moments where, like verse 3 says, we envy people. Maybe you could replace that word with envy with some other of the seven deadly sins that might be more relevant to your own life. But, but we struggle, especially as we look at, at other people. We wonder if God is the pathway to goodness or the obstacle to goodness. And this morning, we need to go into the sanctuary And be reminded that everything as we see it now is not as it's always going to be. But rather, we need to look to the cross, to the resurrection of Jesus, and be reminded that God is going to set the world right, and that if we want to be on the right side of eternity, it means being right with God and being right with His Son. And so this morning, I hope you think about the good life. (laughs) And and I, I, I hope you have visions of the good life. But... As we leave this place today and go out into the world for this week, we're going to be tempted to look at a lot of 
things as sources of goodness in our lives. And what the Bible reminds us this morning is we need to look to the cross, look to the resurrection of Jesus, and be reminded that God is good all the time. And to look to Him as our only fountain of goodness. Pray with me. Gracious God, You are good. It's easier to say than it often is to believe and to live in the light of. And I pray that this morning that you would help each of us to have an Asaph-like experience. That, Father, you would challenge us where we are trying to pursue the good life apart from you. Father, help each of us to have enough uh, of your light shining on our hearts to be able to see things that we're seeking after that are wood, hay, and stubble. And Father, but likewise, we pray, draw us to Christ. Give us confidence and assurance that you are good as we look to him. Confidence so that like Asaph, we can know this morning that because of Christ, we will spend eternity with you in glory on account of the goodness you've shown us in your son. And Father, we pray that in those moments where we look at the lives of others and are drawn to envy, even drawn to uh, being mad at you, perhaps. We pray, we pray for the wicked. And Father, we pray uh, for people that we know who are apart from you, living on what the Bible calls here slippery ground. Father, we pray that our nature would be like your nature, that we would want to see good things happen to them. And so, Father, we pray, whether through us or apart from us, that you would show your goodness to them, but especially bring them to saving faith in your Son, that they may know your goodness now and for all of eternity. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.